Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of A Grand Reflection. We are still going through this whole death and acceptance thing that um, was going to be one episode and has expanded all the way out into what it looks like is um, seven episodes. So this one's a little unique because um, it's a Comet Trail episode, uh, still very much related, but a little more self-contained and looking at a current event. So what I want to look at is um, in the news recently, uh, maybe about uh, a week ago, my time, uh, you know, because you're listening to me in the past here, um, uh, a week ago for me, uh, Tennessee banned a few books for um, a school district. And one of those books was Mouse, which is a um, kind of allegorical, although not quite, it's pretty direct, uh, look at the um, damages of Nazi Germany. Um, so the the Jews are depicted as mice and the Nazis are depicted as cats. And um, it's considered a masterwork by, by many and most and uh, has been for decades now. Um, it's kind of a classic. And uh, that was one of the ones they decided to ban. The reason they decided to ban it was um, because of swearing. Um, there, there's a part where it says, uh, God damn you. And then, um, because of, uh, nudity, which, um, is true. That is in there, but it is, uh, one, it's cartoon mouse nudity. So, um, that, that's a little weird to get hung up on as opposed to other things. But I, I think the other piece of that is it's, um, nudity depicted like it, it's um, dehumanization nudity it's not um, something that is meant to arouse uh, not something that is uh, meant to make you feel good in any way um, it's supposed to be uncomfortable and and that's kind of the point uh, so yeah so they banned this book last week and then um, here we go this week in the news is this really uh on the surface, very crazy looking pastor uh, who um, decided his congregation would have a book burning. And um, yeah, that's not not usually a good thing when you see book burnings. Um, we'll get into that a little later. But I couldn't really ignore that, being as I work in a bookshop and um, I've been talking about fire and these ideas of ins and outs and purity, um, it's, it's all too interrelated. And it's actually a lot more related the more I got into it. So uh, we're just going to check that out and see what we can um, come up with, see what we can pull out of this whole situation, and uh, hopefully come out the other end with a better understanding of where the heck this is coming from and uh, what we can do about it, how we can recontextualize it. Um, just like with my story, how we can integrate it into the other stuff that we've already gone over and um, hopefully co come out with some sort of uh, semblance of meaning or uh, a renewed sense of uh, hope or understanding. And uh, yeah, let's get to it. So my re initial reaction upon hearing the news was like, um, that's an evil person there how how dare they do this to uh my beloved books uh, especially when i found out that uh, one of them was harry potter which i grew up with the series and um never had any notion of any ounce of evil in them unless you want to count like voldemort 
um, sorry, I said his name out loud, he who must not be named. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I grew up with them and I was at just the right age where the first book came out when I was in about sixth grade and then every consecutive year uh, was a new book until I got all the way to high school and um, the books kind of matured alongside me. I was definitely one of those who would do the um, midnight releases at Barnes and Noble. We'd all dress up, and uh, those were. F I, I, I don't think I will ever see anything like that again. Um, and uh, the, the, they were amazing moments of, uh, <laughs> yeah, being the middle of the night, feeling kind of like Halloween because we're all dressed up, seeing friends that I never expected to see there there. And these stores being packed full of like magicians and little extra handouts and like stacks and stacks and stacks of the books because they know that they're going to sell like hundreds of them. And um, yeah, like readings of the first chapters and uh, just all sorts of every everything. Everybody's entering into the magic of it and, and having fun with the story. Um, so yeah, so this guy burning Harry Potter books uh, were one of the ones that he called out to have burned. Um, and also Twilight books, which I'm a little more okay with. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to ever like some, I, I don't like them that much. Um, and maybe I would more, I don't know. Maybe I, I um, hmm, I'll have to look at that. I might have to reassess that because part of the reason I don't like the Twilight books might have nothing to do with um, their quality and everything to do with toxic masculine norms. Uh, sparkly vampires aren't exactly something that a high schooler's, uh, high school male is, is really allowed to read. So, uh, yeah, maybe I'll reassess that one later, but either way, um, I'm going, they're my, they're my beloved books. Uh, this guy's gotta be evil, but um, I felt a little uncomfortable at that because I've been talking about all these things where um, the lines are never really that clear. They're blurred. And um, the stereotypes are not helpful and they divide us. And so I kind of sat with that with a moment and I thought, oh no, I, I have to go listen to a sermon. And lo and behold, it was super easy because um, I guess he's got like 2.2 million people on Facebook and he just posted it right there on Facebook. So, uh, really easy to find. And, um, and so I listened to it and my immediate first impressions was like, oh man, this is not, um, what I thought it was. I was expecting, uh, you know, like clans member kind of stuff, like the stuff you see in movies with like, uh, burning pitchforks and, uh, Nazi symbolism everywhere and, uh, all this kind of stuff. Um, no, not the case. Uh, it's just a, a regular pastor on stage. Looks looks like one of the hipster pastors a little bit. Um, you know, he's not all dressed up in a suit. He's He's got some flannel on. He's got a beard. Um, and, uh, you know, he's waving his Bible around and getting a little uh, excited. But he doesn't seem overly angry. He just seems impassioned. Um, and that's something I had to kind of sit with uh, because... I have seen pastors like this before. I grew up with pastors like this. I um, have heard a thousand sermons that sound just like the sermon that I'm listening to. And um, yeah, he's really well reasoned out. And he is um, even getting, giving counters to the people that might say something different. 
uh, he actually makes a lot of really good points that I completely track with, which I know sounds really uncomfortable, but don't worry, I'll get to it. Um, first, I just want to point out the positive, point out what, what I saw that um, I feel like is something we can work with, and then we'll get to all the problematic stuff. But uh, yeah, he's talking um, talking about uh, trying to do this bonfire after and uh, having the problematic people, people try to stop, stop it. Um, and um, including like uh, the uh, mayor of the town saying like, hey, maybe uh, don't do this because it's getting like too much negative attention. And him going like, well, I'm not just going to like bow down to the cultural norms and do something because somebody says it. And, you know, in a weird way, I do track with that. Um, that I think that that's a, a good thing to do is to recognize that you don't have to go with the norm, um, that you can do something countercultural and that's okay. Uh, so, so there's that. And then um, he talked about fines, um, that uh, they might revoke the permit and they might have to pay a fine. And, you know, he said, I'm not doing this for money, uh, which was weirdly and uncomfortably refreshing to hear because um, the church is so tied in with money these days. And I've, I've talked about that before. I talked about that, especially through this series of like, um, religion and capitalism and, uh, how all that is like stuck in with itself. Um, yeah. And it, and it seemed like he was very genuine about that. Like, like going like, look guys, we're not doing it for the money. If we need to, we'll figure out a way to pay that fine because we're doing this either way. And, um, so he's talking about all this stuff and he's also talking about um an inclusion and this was something that that kind of made me pause too like he was saying like anybody can show up here uh everybody is welcome we're gonna do what we're gonna do but everybody is welcome um and uh you don't need to be perfect to be here uh you don't need to have all your stuff figured out just show up uh i like that too that that kind of meeting people where they're at so um yeah, there's there's a lot there. Also, um, he was going through the Bible verse by verse, which is a pretty uh, kind of standard format for Protestant um, preaching. But um, he was also contextualizing it pretty well, uh, taking pulling some stuff out that was pretty uncommon, um, but not in a way that wasn't um, uh, concise and... Um, understandable that wasn't um, way out of the norm uh, I think that was another thing that actually brought me some discomfort I was like oh yeah I've heard these verses and I kind of um, I think were I at a different place in my life would completely agree with them um, he's talking about a spiritual world that we tend to ignore that we tend to flatten our understanding and our existence to uh, the instrumental, but that there's a whole other thing going on. Um, in the last episode, I talked about uh, the prayer room that I uh, that I was next to uh, while I was living at the 10th Street house and the tremendous freedom that that brought, stepping into that sort of um, uh, s spiritual, unseen, um, intuitive space. And he's talking a lot about that. He's talking about um, the power of prayer and the need for us to uh, let go of our control and to um, to to open our eyes to 
bigger things that may be, may be at play, um, different things that are connected uh, that on the surface maybe not seem so. So as he's talking about all this stuff, um, I'm going, well, shoot, uh, I don't know if I'm okay with this because this is a reasoned argument with a lot of things in it that I um, even still believe. Uh, so how do we how do we get from my same belief here, you know, not perfectly, but in a lot of ways, um, or something that I used to believe very much so. Uh, if I had heard this sermon isolated and like all of the talk of the book burnings was cut out, I, I think, you know, 20 some odd old me would have thought of it as a good sermon. Uh, it was very well structured. It was consistent in its logic. It was... Um, making counter arguments ahead of time before um, before the before objections could be made and it came to a conclusion that was a pretty standard uh, biblical interpretation something that I've heard in the church time and time again and so I had to take a step back and I had to like look at uh, okay well what do we know about this guy um, what what have we seen uh, before? And um, that that's kind of where it started falling apart. <laughs> um, so, something about knowing somebody by their works, or um, I, I don't know, you could look at uh, moral philosophy, uh, consequentialism. Um, doesn't really hold up, doesn't really hold a candle to it, because um, most recently, uh, we, which isn't too crazy, because unfortunately it's really standard among a lot of pastors, uh, COVID-19 denial, um, saying that it's not a big deal, saying that the vaccines aren't safe, um, saying that uh, the government is trying to control us, uh, those kind of narratives, um, which unfortunately are kind of understandable in the current climate. It's almost like, you know, uh, I am frustrated and appalled by that mindset, but I'm not surprised by it um, within the Christian community. So there was that, but then I started looking, um, looking deeper, and uh, it's not the first time that controversies reached him. Uh, a few years ago, he um, there was the whole thing with Target, where Target was trying to allow um, they they created a new rule that said uh, basically whatever your affirmed gender is, you can use that bathroom, and it caused this huge. Um, like moral outrage and, and made the news and stuff. Um, I don't think Target was trying to be controversial. I think they were just trying to update their their terms to like modern day stuff. But um, a lot of uh, the Christian community uh, kind of rallied against that and said like, well, you know, what about predators? Um, you know, somebody could just pretend that they're, um, you know, uh, transgender and walk into a woman's bathroom and then, you know, protect the women, protect the children. Uh, but um, Greg Locke, that's the pastor's name, uh, he was kind of at the forefront of that accusation. Um, that's one of the things that kind of brought him to Twitter fame. So that's interesting. And it kind of connects to these old um, accusations that have to do with um, witchcraft and uh, protecting children uh, from from harm, uh, maintaining the family, and that kind of stuff. Uh, 
I, I think it's no accident that you have a guy that is deeply uh, concerned and interested with kids getting uh, violated in some way, uh, getting hurt, and then um, turning to a burning of books of witchcraft. So uh, there's kind of this um, aggression that he employs that I've seen a hundred times before uh, that, that's rooted in a masculinity that says that you have to protect. It's the same sort of masculinity that says that um, I need to carry a gun so I can protect my family. And I could really see this coming through in his sermon. Uh, there was emotion, but a lot of the emotion was anger. And that, um, and he's talking about emotions and how they are good and we need them which was so interesting because um i don't hear that a lot in the american church uh, a lot of um the narratives are the heart is deceptive above all else and uh who can trust it and and those kind of things so it, it's uh that's that was another one of those things that um makes me feel a little uncomfortable because i ag agree with that piece of it um, but uh, mostly where he's directing that emotion is in anger and an outrage and a, uh, a frustration with the ways that other people are doing things because that doesn't seem like something that is safe. And I do think that he believes that. I think that he is um, in this framework where there are unsafe things out there and it is uh, my job as a man to protect everyone from those unsafe things. Now, I might get harmed as a man, but as long as everybody else is safe, that's good. And so it creates this difficulty because um, whenever he gets backlash, and he has, um, he will double down because it's, it's going like, well, I expected this. I expected I would get a little bruised and bloodied um, by standing up against this evil thing that is out there that is out to get us. And... My mark of a man is how much I choose to keep getting up. It's kind of like um, the whole Steve Rogers things, like, like like I can do this all day. But because of that binary of good and evil, uh, anytime somebody opposes him, uh, he sees them as less of a man. Because um, in his brain, it, it's, it's not that... Um, somebody has a differing view or something like that. It's that somebody has um, stopped, like has given up the fight, has given in to the evil. And so um, when the governor said that he might revoke the permit, um, he called the governor a coward. Uh, he also did that for uh, COVID-19 restrictions. He, he called them uh, cowards for bowing down to this uh, evil and oppressive government. And I'm not saying that in t like hyperbole. Um, he, he called the government um, uh, a like a demon possessed, basically. Uh, there's some quotes that you could find. I, I don't have it on hand here, but they're out there. It's, it's pretty uh, decisive language. And um, as he's saying the sermon, he's talking about, uh, well, why is nobody else talking about this? Why is nobody else making these drastic moves? Doesn't this seem extreme? You know, and you're going, yeah, it does seem a little extreme. 
Uh, but then he says, well, you know, it's because we we need to fight. Um, you might be used to these prissy little pastors that aren't willing to say the tough things. Um, I, I've got a quote here. Um, where is that? Mealy mouth, weak kneed, skinny jeans preaching. Um, it's got quite a ring to it, doesn't it? Uh, this idea that um, somehow your theology is less than... Uh, if your manhood is less than. So these insults to manhood are also a signal of the lack of conviction, um, the lack of the strength to do what needs to be done for good to prevail. And I actually hear a lot of echoes on this point with Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill. There's this certain bait and switch that goes on because you're not getting fulfilled by these more old-fashioned preachings and you're not getting fulfilled by these sort of um, going in with the crowd preachings so uh, you kind of have these two these two sides you have something that is uh, static and dead um, that feels outdated um, maybe it's using older language it's saying the same thing it's been saying for years uh, you know we've all seen those churches that just seem to not get with the times and feel like they're a relic of the past. And then the other side of that, you get these other churches that completely abandon um, everything they were doing and really try to cater to um, the culture. So, for instance, um, in th this happened a lot in like the early 2000s. You had all these bands that came up, like uh, Switchfoot and Reliant K, and um, they were Christian, but they also like weren't. And um, it, it was this whole thing of like, well, this sounds like the culture's music, but it's saying Jesus stuff, so it's okay. Um, so maybe we can act just like the culture, and, and maybe we can assimilate into the culture, and we don't have to feel so uncomfortable for being so different, but we can still kind of do our thing. Um, to me, it seems like uh, these two approaches are uh, sort of a self-imposed... Um, in some ways self-imposed, but I, I think it's also pressure from the culture. Uh, either um, the words I used before, um, assimilation or ex uh, exile. Uh, so, so either you're assimilating to the culture by uh, discarding all these things that you're convicted about. Um, and I think that that's probably his um, critique there. He's mixing in a lot of notions of manhood, but he's also kind of saying like, look, you're, you're going with like the hip stuff and you're putting yourselves to the whim of the culture. You're letting go of your convictions um, as opposed to the other side, which is uh, we are going to exile ourselves. We're not going to be any part of the culture. And he does seem to be in between here, which is something that I saw with Mars Hill and with Mark Driscoll that actually made him very, very popular because you had this feeling of being in the culture, but not of it. This feeling of being uh, separate and doing something very different, but also something that was alive and evolving and something that felt uh, personal and um, honest. And, and so uh, the, the, this Pastor Locke seems to be doing the same sort of thing. Um, which honestly is uh, difficult to uh, to grapple with because that's the kind of attitude 
that um, people feel a lot of belonging in and will gravitate towards. So anyway, he goes through the whole sermon and uh, mostly he's just talking about, it's just tracing through and talking about these ideas of uh, getting demons out and um, these ideas of uh, making yourself pure and clean um, before the Lord, right? And uh, he does make like a lot of points like, look, there are people among us who are unclean. Um, and, and I think that this is where it diverges is like, he says, like, it's absolutely okay for you to be here, but, um, we're going to see some weird stuff because we are going to get that evil part out of you. And for somebody who, um, maybe is struggling with like, quote unquote, sin, that probably sounds like a really good thing. Um, something that like, you know, maybe they keep going back to these patterns and habits and addictions, um, and don't like that part of themselves and want it to come out. And in fact, he actually talked about other stuff too. Uh, he talked about depression, depression, a heavy spirit, um, that those things are of the devil and that they are uh, demons oppressing, uh, oppressing you, which I think is kind of a genius. Um, I, I, I don't think he realized what he was doing, but uh, there is a lot of heavy feelings these days. The last couple of years have brought a lot of change and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of people are sitting with that. And a lot of people, well, nobody, none of us chose to sit with all that. It just came to us. And so I think a lot of people are looking for freedom from that. So to be told that this is something that is that you don't have to deal with, in fact, that it's good to rid yourself of these heavy feelings. Um, yeah, that's powerful. I can see why somebody would want to follow that. So he's going through the Bible verse by verse, and he gets sort of to the culmination of this whole sermon, which ends at the end of Mark. And Mark 16 is a very interesting set of passages because um, it's one of the few places in the Bible where there are, where it ends at verse 9, and then it says um, some manuscripts don't include the next verses. Um, they may have been added at a later date. And the verbiage will be a little different depending on what uh, translation you're using, but either way, um, what seems to have happened is people added a separate line at the end. Uh, well, a separate set of lines. But he uses those separate set of lines. Um, it's uh, especially verse 17, which uh, says, uh, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in, in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And um, basically the whole set of verses says that these are the signs that you will see to uh, see the, the work of God in the world. But those were not originally there. The, those verses were added at a later date, maybe uh, second century um, is what it seems like. And before that, older manuscripts, they end on verse 9, which uh, the whole chapter is uh, the Mary, mother of God, Mary Magdalene, and um, oh, what is her name? The daughter of Herod they are all going to the tomb um, because you have to prepare a body when it's died. And, uh, you know, you got to bring all these spices and, and to, um, yeah, 
to to like get it ready to be in the tomb. And they don't quite know what they're going to do because um, there's a stone that's rolled over this tomb. And they're not going to be strong enough to, to pull it out of the way. But they get there, and it's already rolled away. And they're like, oh, cool. They go in. And then there's um, some random guy in white just sitting there kind of inexplicably. Uh, a lot of people kind of, uh, a lot of scholars kind of say that this is probably an angel. Um, but uh, he says, hey, yeah, Jesus isn't here. And they're like, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, well, he's risen. He's gone. And uh, they're all like baffled. And uh, <laughs> this like angel dude is like, yeah, go tell everybody. And then... Um, the ending passage is like, but they were quiet because they were afraid. And um, and that's how it ends. It ends super ambiguously. You're like, well, did they like get not afraid? And then they go and tell everybody. Um, did anybody actually see Jesus after that? Uh, who is this guy? Is he really like some angel or did he like just disappear? Or uh, is he still there with them? You like you end up with all these questions and this strange mystery that could kind of be explained away just by like circumstance but also seems mysterious and um seems otherworldly and uh so you, you end on this ambiguity and these later passages like remove that ambiguity rather than this mystery you're saying like these are the signs that will accompany you these are the uh proof this is the proof and all these things that have to do with proof um, except for the speaking in tongues, they all have to do with purity. Um, so driving out of demons, uh, snakes, you can pick them up with your hands. Uh, you're not going to get poisoned. Um, you'll place your hands on six people and they'll get well. So they all have to do with ideas of purity. And, um, and then the, the speaking in new tongues, uh, with preaching, right? And that becomes the new focus for, how to relate to this Christianity. It's not about um, sitting with like verse nine kind of ends on. It's more about, um, yeah. So like rather than sitting in the mystery, it's more about proclaiming the word, proclaiming the gospel to everybody, which is something that Jesus kind of talked about in his ministry, but he was playing on um, the ways of the empire because uh, gospel isn't a new word. Gospel was something that the Caesars would do. Uh, they would um, they would conquer a new land, and then they would go into it, and they would send somebody, um, uh, Evangelion, uh, which is actually where we get angel, evangelism, um, and to evangel to the, the new people that are part of the kingdom, to proclaim the uh, godhood and goodness of their new ruler, Caesar. And that was a gospel, the good news. And this kind of gets co-opted as this um, Christian thing where uh, the focus, the new focus becomes um, to bring the kingdom of God, to um, expand it, to uh, go to all corners of the earth and um, to sort of convert everybody. And, and when you see this, when you see these roots here, it, you really see how that can continue on to become something like um, eradicating Native Americans and moving into the land and considering it a promised land. But that whole mindset has to do with, one, assuring that you're right, two, um, 
eradicating any sort of evil so that the um, kingdom can spring forth. And so you kind of see this through line where uh, all of a sudden it makes it makes sense uh, to burn the pagan things, burn the things that are not of God, to cleanse them in the fire. Um, if you are going with the metaphor, we talked about the fire before, uh, this idea of um, clearing a field and uh, getting it ready for growth. It It's sort of those kind of notions when you're hearing this guy talk that they are... Um, it, it's this idea of what's going to come forth from this. What what sort of fruits are going to happen from here? Um, and on that note, he talked about this really interesting thing. Um, he did talk about fruits uh, specifically. And he said, um, it, it's time to do some root deep preaching. Like, we, like if our fruits are bad, we got to go down to the root. We got to figure out what the source is. And for him, the source is um, this, this demonic activity that you've got to literally root out. But uh, yeah, he said, uh, root deep preaching uh, and, and get to the spirit of the matter. Now, this was interesting because I've talked about spirit and soul quite a bit, especially the creativity episode. Um, yeah, spirit, that is the, the uh, movement in the world, the externality um, that happens. Uh, that is the ego at work. And uh, or, or if you want to look at it a different way, that is the left brain, the uh, structural brain. The spirit is the uh, structure, the singular direction that you're going, not not the opening of possibilities or the sitting with and understanding. It is the uh, arrow moving forward. So um, uh, with the ego, with the left brain functioning, that is where we get our words. That's where we get our... Um, uh, concrete ideas are signs. So you have signs and words uh, show, showing up again through this one passage as opposed to uh, the soul uh, sitting with and understanding. Um, I just thought that was a really interesting thing. I, I wish that there was... Um, it, it seems like there's actually some good ideas here that he is talking about but they haven't really been sat with and, and the implications understood fully. Um, it seems like that has been abandoned for the sake of this uh, urgent action that needs to be done now, that needs to be uh, exacted upon the world in a, um, a swift and efficient way uh, that's going to be some hard work. Uh, he had a lot of talk about the hard work and the uh, tilling of the soil and the um, straining and... Uh, the the difficulties that are ahead because of this and because of that focus on the concrete on the visible which is paradoxically um you know he's talking about these spiritual things but he's um enacting his force in the world um having signs rather than symbols is really uh really comes home because one of the other things that he's talking about is the Freemasons. Apparently there's like a Freemason society in, in the city and he's deemed that demonic um, because of its ties to occult things. Um, he mentions the symbols that that are on their, uh, on their buildings. And um, Freemasons, interestingly, uh, often have their roots in a sort of pseudo-Christianity 
but it's symbolic. It's, it's um, not considered the uh, capital T absolute truth. It's considered a sort of story or allegory or uh, symbol that you can um, use to uh, better understand yourself and better understand the world around you. Um, so it's malleable and it's able to change. So he gets to the end of the sermon and there's a little bit of singing, which was another uncomfortable point because it's a bunch of music that I've already heard um, because I grew up with it. And um, then he talks about communion and he says, hey, we're not going to do communion tonight because there are unclean spirits among us. Uh, we are not going to turn communion into a prostitute. We're not going to defile this sacred tradition because we need to drive out the demons first. And I thought this was really pointed, especially um, the last song that they sung was uh, had this line, um, come, uh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness um, is uh, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And um, basically the whole song is basically saying, uh, you know, repent, come to the altar. You can always repent. And the price has already been paid for. But I was thinking of this from a new lens and thinking like, gosh, that's, that really sucks because that's basically saying like, what is inside you is evil and your only freedom from that is for somebody else to suffer, somebody else to make a sacrifice uh, so that you can be okay. And, um, more than that, it, it there's basically an undertone. It, it's never spoken out loud in Christianity, but the undertone is like, repent and I will love you. And there's a lot of language of like the unbounded love of God, but there's also not a lot of acceptance except through this repentance. So there, there, there's this assumption um, th that, uh, that you are supposed to be a certain way and that you're not allowed to be other ways. Um, it's almost like a guilt trip. Like, well, God loves you anyway, so you better change. And I was seeing a lot of echoes of this um, or, or or callbacks, I guess, to the um, Thanksgiving episode where I talked about this false belonging where um, we have mythologized this really tense meeting between two parties that's more political and turned it into a happy uh, everybody's excited to be here and everybody feels like they belong sort of uh, meal of abundance and um, I think we do the same thing with communion it's this meal that we have that has this mythological root um, that was a, a beginnings of something profound and something big and we have um, turned it into this thing where some people feel like they belong, but most people secretly don't um, because there's, there's, there's these certain parts that don't fit in. It, it feels very similar to the idea of uh, fitting in the group of a, a masculine uh, norm um, and, and this idea of uh, being invited, but um, invited with conditions. And so they don't do communion, and instead they um, they call people out to to go to the bonfire and um, do the book burning, 
and you have this camera that follows them out and it's <laughs> it's really funny and i i'm sure that they didn't catch the irony but uh it looks very blair witch project like um it they must have used some older technology or something because the film kind of fades out a little bit and there's um, no audio because they forgot to switch the audio feed so so you hear audio but it's mostly static and it's like some some guys laughing about some joke in the background and you watch it you're, you don't hear the audio of everybody walking over to the fire but it's like centered on the pastor and it's all staticky because it's dark outside and there's points where it goes black because there's not enough light but then you know you get the overwhelming bloomed out light of the, the flame and um, you have all these somber people and the the lights doing these weird things to the colors of their shirts and their pants and like like everybody looks like they're sort of in a um, like a same color scheme that's kind of red shifted uh, honestly the whole thing looked traditionally demonic <laughs> which which is weird I'm sure they'll skew it uh, I'm sure they'll um, like fit it retroactively and say like oh see the demons were there look at that they were trying to mess with our feed and um, which is fine, but, uh, yeah, so that was, like, one thing, there's, like, this man laughing, which was interesting, and then, um, uh, the other thing that I noticed was, uh, you could see the blackness of the sky, but you couldn't see any of the stars, because the, um, the flames were so bright, and I thought, like, well, that's interesting, you know, I wonder if they can normally see stars, and I looked it up, and, um, looked up the, like, the dark, on the dark sight finder, like, where the, clearest night skies are and they are in one of the most light polluted areas um and i thought that was like interestingly symbolic like he had a lot of conversation within the sermon about light casting out the darkness and um um being revealed by the light and the darkness you know can't hide from it and all that kind of stuff and i thought man what a shame like um you're in this place where you don't see stars not really um the amount of light pollution that they have is um some of the worst in the, in the entire country they'd have to go hours and hours and hours to see uh any any sort of semblance of the milky way but on this note of enlightenment it got me thinking about john locke uh because this guy's name is greg locke and the l-o-c-k-e um just had me uh you know making connections and so john locke was an enlightenment thinker and he had this idea of tabula rasa, which is the blank slate. So um, there's no original sin. There's no original badness in somebody, but that gets created by the people that they're around. That um, someone becomes who they are because of um, the influences that are put upon them. It's kind of the nature versus nurture argument. He would be on the nurture side of that argument. Uh, but aside from that, he had a lot of other things going on. John Locke was very religiously tolerant. Um, he was a Christian himself, but he was also interested in subjectivity, which is this idea that um, nobody is unbiased, that um, the subject, the self, uh, is um, is an experience in and of its own. And um, stemming from a lot of these ideas, he actually, uh, a lot of uh, evidence points towards him being the direct root of our um, founding ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, the ways that uh, allowing for a tolerance, allowing for a diverse set of views allows everybody to feel free. 
which was another bit of horrible irony because um, the pastor, Greg Locke, had this shirt that said 1776 uh, forever free. And so he's he's doing this thing where he's telling other people that they're they're not okay, um, that they need to change to be okay, that they can be okay, that there's power to be okay, but um, but being intolerant of these other ideas. Uh, because there's other stuff too. It wasn't just uh, the Harry Potter books. Um, it was uh, Freemason ideas, which uh, you know, which had all these symbols and stuff. Uh, tarot cards. A lot of New Age things were being thrown into fire. I saw clothing. I saw uh, small pieces of furniture. Obviously, the books. Um, everybody seemed to have a little bit of a different idea of what to throw into the fire. And he had mentioned in the sermon that this is biblical, that this has been going on for thousands of years, this idea of throwing these pagan idols into a fire. And I thought, well, yeah, I guess that is true. Um, but I was trying to figure out, like, like, how is this different? And what I, what I realized is the difference is the connection to the object. So um, it's a pretty traditional idea when you convert to Christianity from... Um, a pagan belief. Uh, this has happened, you know, countless times the world over. You create a bonfire and you throw your idols into it. And um, the idea, though, is that these are things that are uh, dear to you, and you're recognizing that this new way of living is worth it. That that it's worth removing um, these old ways of thinking. It's it's worth purging, and. Um, it's, it, it's like clearing the field, except it's clearing the field in your own life. It's not um, <laughs> burning your neighbor's field and then saying, hey, uh, I thought I would get your crops ready for you. And when I was thinking of it this way, I was kind of um, drawn in by this bonfire imagery. And immediately I thought of another bonfire, which happens every single year, which is Burning Man. And Burning Man is a really interesting... Um, uh, ritual, um, <laughs> gathering, uh, whatever you want to call it, because um, that is a true communion. So he was talking about communion uh, as in like the Christian church communion, but a, a communion comes from commune, comes from uh, community, uh, this idea of uh, connection and deep interconnection with other people. And um, there's kind of an interesting striking point that he chose not to do communion while he's doing this thing that's dividing him from the community around him because a true communion would be something like Burning Man where you are communing together. You're, you're coming together in like a sacred space and you are allowing everybody to be exactly who they are and how they want to be. In fact, I see a lot of through lines. Uh, the last episode I talked about Rocky Horror Picture Show and how much freedom I had felt that, uh, when I went in my 20s because I felt like for once I could uh, just decide who I wanted to be. And um, everybody was okay with that. And Burning Man is the exact same kind of thing, but it's also um, a yearly event that uh, takes on a sacred tone in terms of letting go. The, the idea of the, uh, burning the, uh, the man <laughs> is uh, to, to kind of take a good look at the things in your life that you no longer want to be a part of them, to let them go, and to uh, create room for, for something new. And in terms of this idea of switching things up, I happened to, um, just yesterday morning, 
be talking to my friend Dustin and we were talking about making things sacred and we were talking about hauntings. Um, so previously in the Death and Acceptance series, I talked about um, how things can haunt you, how the past can haunt you and how um, people that you used to interact with can haunt you. And he sent me this message. He was saying, you know, I was realizing that this extends beyond people. It, it extends to objects and I'm doing some uh, sort of spring cleaning and I'm uh, going through all this stuff that I um, have been holding on to for years. And he talked about his um, his parents and how much they uh, hoard things and how much of a burden that was for them and how much he didn't want that kind of for himself, that he wanted this freedom to uh, reinvent and to recreate. And um, for him, he's got a lot of extra projects that go on all the time. And um, so some of them will be abandoned or some of them won't even be started. They'll just be like the supplies he got. And as he was going through all his stuff, he was recognizing like uh, each one of these things has a, a specific memory, a specific connection and path. And some of them can be let go of. Some of them are uh, things that just aren't a priority, um, that uh, really never came to fruition or something else came into fruition, like from the original idea or whatever. So some things are things to get let go of. And other things were used well, but have gotten worn out. Like uh, one of the examples that he gave was um, this ball of wire because uh, he does some electronics so it's this big ball of wire that he's used countless times um, and he has all these different connections to it from all these different projects but um, it was worth doing an upgrade so what he did was he created a spool for them just out of some cardboard and some glue but rolled them back up and then um, they brought on a new life they became new and that spurred on this conversation where we were talking about um, entering into connection with objects and animism, this idea that objects have a life to them and have a um, sort of breathing force that they can haunt you uh, because um, while they're not as alive as human beings, uh, they do change over time and they do um, have room to interact with. Uh, there's sort of a back and forth that I change an object and an object changes me, but part of that is the object needs to be free to change. The object needs to be free to evolve as I'm evolving, just like every re relationship. Otherwise, the, the the object's dead and the relationship is dead. And so that brings me to this last little spot of this whole bonfire experience. As I'm watching this video, there's one guy who comes as a counter-protester. And what he does is he takes a Bible and throws it into the bonfire. And then he holds up a copy of... Fahrenheit 451 and Darwin's Origin of the Species. Now, I'm sure this guy was um, being just as hateful as they were. He was probably just um, putting himself on the other side of the aisle. But there was something profound about this action, whether or not he realized the profundity of it. Uh, the first thing is uh, Fahrenheit 451 is um, a great book for talking about book burnings. Um, in fact, there's a really interesting part of this where um, Pastor Locke was talking about the um, fire department coming in and to respect them and to um, let them do their thing and not cause trouble. Don't stir up trouble. And, um, you know, because we love them and we want them. And uh, Fahrenheit 451 has firefighter like uh, they have the fire department, but they're actually ones that start the fires and... Um, burn the books. So uh, I just thought that was like a, an interesting connection of uh, 
just just kind of coming through there. But the other one, Origin of the Species, um, talking about this idea of things changing over time, this idea of allowing things to change and evolve, and um, this idea of a Burning Man kind of bonfire being letting go of the things that are unchanging, that can't change. Uh, and and so it provided this really cool contrast of like this this holding up origin of the, of the species and affirming evolution like hey we've come from somewhere we are different than we were and we're going to be different again and then throwing in the bible this thing that has become so static that used to change a lot um that ideas of it used to change a lot but has become um the de facto word of god unchanging unerring uh, inspired by right all, all of that and throwing that thing into the fire which um, oddly would be a lot more helpful I think that would be the thing that would provide a movement and a newness and a new vitality and life to these people and this is kind of something that, that weirdly has some roots within the Christian mytholo mythological structure you could interpret that as a beautiful reenactment of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ you can say hey uh, we need to let the Bible die so that so that it can come back to life in our souls so that we can um, experience it on a deeper level with a newfound relationship between it that isn't just using it as an object but recognizing it as a living, changing, breathing force. There's another little matter here because I want to take it another step deeper is um, at the very end of this whole thing there were some slides, which is pretty common among Christian circles to kind of throw these slides up, um, you know, where the uh, lyrics to the worship stuff was, uh, to kind of just have it there for people to see as they're exiting out. Um, <clears throat> but they did this, um, they, they put those up there after the video of the burning, uh, just kind of on their video to kind of give people that information. And one of the things that they did is, uh, I guess on Mondays, they have a men's meeting now, I didn't see anything for a women's meeting, so that, that's interesting and telling uh, all on its own. Not to say that they don't have one, but the men's meeting was first either way. So um, there's that. But what they called it was Iron Men. And I think there's a couple things going on here. One, there's the Iron Man competition, which is a 2.4-mile swim on a 112-mile bike ride, and then a marathon, and you do them all back-to-back. -back. And... Um, so it's this idea of running a race, of brutalizing your body, that kind of stuff. So, so that's one imagery. Another one is iron sharpening iron, which is a, uh, it's Proverbs uh, twenty-seven seventeen, talking about uh, your neighbor and, um, yeah, iron sharpening iron. But I, I did find a really interesting thing about this one because I've heard this verse time and time again of like, uh, yeah, men, be like iron sharpening iron, become become strong points, become a good weapon. But um, there's this really good essay, and I'll link it, is, uh, that says, um, there is very little evidence, however, for these interpretations, which appear to reflect modern connotations of sharpness. In fact, the biblical evidence for parts of a face that are, quote-unquote, sharp, suggests a more negative reading. Uh, reading for sharp eyes or a sharp tongue show an intent to do violence or to bring about destruction. The usage of the verb sharpen uh, elsewhere seems to confirm this interpretation. So Proverbs uh, twenty-seven seventeen may therefore be stating 
that just as an iron hammer violently pounds out soft iron in the smithing process, uh, so too may same gender neighbor uh, may a same gender neighbor engage in a similarly violent act. I thought that was really pointed because that is the kind of experience that I have had with um, masculine norms and uh, male ideology and the ways that you are sort of hammered out uh, of, of the quote-unquote softness that you have and turned into this tool, uh, turned into this object essentially, right? Um, flattened out from your subjectivity into this object for the use of something else, your body meant to be used up and brutalized um, and quite literally objectified. Um, but uh, Iron Man, right? So there's this other side. <laughs> Again, there's a third definition for Iron Man, right? Which is the superhero, uh, who is the quintessential sacrificial superhero within our current understanding of that character. Uh, Tony Stark is, his whole arc is going from a self-focus to a sacrificial focus. This idea that other people matter and, um, you know, there's that criticism from, um, from Captain America that the, you're not the one to make the sacrifice play. And then he does at the end. And that's like the big heroic act. So, so there's this idea of sacrifice as well, but also this idea of being the hero, this idea of being the one that will fix everything, that will make everybody safe and make everything all right. Um, but as I was looking through all this stuff and thinking through all this, uh, one thing that's really interesting is he was, um, talking about the, uh, the ways that people were censoring him because he got, um, he got kicked off Twitter because of some of the things he was saying about COVID and he talked about them in terms of being Nazis, uh, these guys that were, um, policing and censoring him uh one that's highly ironic because nazis uh are probably the most famous of book burners but also too i think this is a common misunderstanding of nazis we have turned nazis into a caricature we've we've said um no these are the evil guys and um please don't take me out of context when i say this uh <laughs> um nazis are not evil not in that sense. Um, they did evil acts. I think that that's the thing to recognize. Um, Hannah Arendt spoke a lot about um, Nazi Germany and trying to wrap her mind around the whole thing because she talked to one of the guys who was convicted, one of the higher-ups, and he seemed just like this normal guy. And she couldn't really square that away and had to wrestle with that. And the, the thing that she came to the conclusion of was the banality of evil. This idea that um, evil, we tend to think of as this dark, malevolent force that corrupts and turns us into this horrible being that will do horrible things. But it's a lot more uh, everyday than that. It's a lot more banal than that, which is to say that um, all these people who took part in the extermination of the Jews, each of them had their own like everyday job, their, um, their own, you know, family and, um, things that they were doing that were just normal day-to-day -day, every, everyday things. And they weren't sitting there trying to think of evil thoughts. They weren't even really, 
um, thinking of themselves as evil because nobody does. Everybody's uh, their own hero in their story, right? Everybody's their own Iron Man making the sacrifice plays. And, and that's really more what it was about was like there were these things that were uncomfortable that they were doing, but they thought they were necessary. They believed that they were necessary. And that's what caused them to do them. They, they felt the uncomfortableness of it, just like every human would, but thought that that was the sacrifice that was needed, that they were doing the hard work so that everybody else could be okay. And um, related to that, there's uh, uh, Solzhenstein. Um, uh, what, what's the book that he does? Uh, I can't remember right now. But he's got this quote that says, um, the... A uh, line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every man. And when you look at it that way, you recognize that um, there is no way to purify yourself completely. There is no way to rid yourself of this propensity for evil, at least not in a final sense. Um, the only way, see, see, it seems to be, the only way to um, curb yourself against evil action is to um, reach down into the depths of the soul, is to have these rituals of letting go, these, um, these ways of bringing in an uncertainty and changing your views and understanding the world in a new light. Um, it seems to be that evil, as we, as we understand it, like um, things like uh, the, the actions of Nazi Germany, have to do more with the certainty of being right than it does with a desire to do harm. And so when you look at it in that perspective, the notion of God himself is, is a, a difficult thing to not turn towards quote unquote evil. And if we're talking about things to be exercised from our body, uh, there's this idea of like demons, like these, these things in us to get rid of um, as if there's this outside force affecting us, causing us to do these evil acts, when really it's the things within our own heart. And the thing enabling that is our certainty. And if God is the thing that is giving us the certainty, then maybe it's God himself that needs to be exercised, that we need to do a ritual expulsion of our notion of God um, to, to let go of him, um, to uh, deconstruct, to decontextualize, to um, remove this notion from our minds, this, this equation that adds up perfectly and has an answer for everything, and allow ourselves to be uh, atheists for a moment, allow our Bible to burn, so to speak, um, so that from those ashes, like a phoenix, we can, um, we can draw back up the things that last through the flame. We can till that fertile soil from the ash and grow something new, something that is a, a little bit more uh, humane or a little bit more in sync with ourselves and the people around us. Um, something that, to, to use the metaphor, uh, is bearing better fruit. I, I think that um, going down to the root, to the true root of it, uh, involves letting go of the very notion of God and allowing ourselves to be atheists, allowing ourselves to be uh, the pagans, the witches, for just a moment, and then decide what is good from there and decide what is good from the ashes of our old understanding.
and bring forth something new, bring a new creation. In this sense, I'm reminded of the myth of Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods to give them to mankind. Uh, he was a god himself, but uh, the idea was that mankind was struggling because they didn't have all of the strength and power and cunning and uh, instinct as all the animals, and they needed something more. And so he stole the fire from the gods to give it to human beings, which uh, represents insight and represents understanding and creativity and looking at things in a new light and coming up with new solutions. And so it's interesting to see this archetype flipped on its head. Um, to use this metaphor for insight and understanding and use it to burn the very things that provide us understanding, uh, books. Um, although there is kind of another realm here is, is books have bindings, right? And uh, uh, Pastor Locke, he was talking about this idea of um, unbinding people from like the chains of the demons, uh, but weirdly, by throwing the books into the fire, um, you are unbinding them. You are opening them up. And we can already see this for, uh, I mean, even just the banning of the mouse book, uh, it became a bestseller. And I think the same sort of effect happens with these ideas when, when you're drawing attention to them like that, when you're uh, illuminating them with flames, you're drawing people towards that fire uh and 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 it's transmuting those those words to become more than words to become symbols uh and then they gain a, a bigger power than they ever had in the first place it's very similar to there's actually a, a pretty common uh neo-pagan uh ritual which is to write something down and then set it on fire to release it um so there's a certain irony here of this uh fire book burning kind of mirroring a, a pagan ritual <laughs> of, of renewal and rebirth, of, of mimicking a um, new age spiritualism uh, like Burning Man that uh, speaks to cycles and seasons. Uh, there's another aspect here that's really interesting, though, it, with the Promethean myth, is Prometheus stole the fire from Hephaestus, who's the god of uh, fire and the god of... Um, craftsmanship and the god of um, uh, creation, like in, in terms of like uh, a blacksmith, right? And part of a after the fire was stolen, uh, mankind gets to keep the fire, but Prometheus gets punished for it, and he gets chained to a rock and has a a, a bird eaten out, like eats out his liver every day, and then um, by order of Zeus, the uh, the liver gets. Uh, regenerated to be eaten out the next day again. Um, but what's chaining him to the rocks is Hephaestus's chains. And Hephaestus and Prometheus were good friends. So Hephaestus doesn't do this willingly. He does this because he feels like it's something that he has to do. And when you look deeper at this Hephaestus character, he has a lot of these characteristics of the everyday working man. He is not that attractive. He's got a little bit of a limp. His body has shown wear and tear. Um, in fact, He's got a lot of signs of uh, arsenic poisoning because at the time when these gods were being created, um, blacksmithing involved using arsenic to temper the metal, and eventually it would cause cancer 
uh, for these blacksmiths. And so they would all be like suffering from these like disfigurements. And so he's got that. Um, but at the same time, he's married to, um, uh, to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And, and so you got this interesting duality of this like rugged, tough working man and this marriage to uh, this woman that he like puts on a pedestal, uh, but also doesn't really like get along with. They never have any kids and they are always like fighting with each other. And so, so you have this goddess that is of passion and lusts and beauty, and he can't connect with her. And in fact, to the level that she goes for uh, Ares, the god of of a different kind of lust, of a bloodlust, uh, of an anger, uh, and uh, the the thrill of battle, the spirit of battle, and uh, has has a kid with him instead. And this kid that they have is uh, called Harmonia who is the goddess of harmony and Hephaestus gets jealous of this. And so he gives a wedding gift to harmony's, uh, spouse, um, that is a pendant that causes misfortune. And so I think this is really potent because you have this, this, this guy who's, um, you know, I mean, he's more than a guy, he's a God, he's archetypal, but he's, he's stepping into these, um, these sort of masculine norms and they're causing an inability for harmony. Like he's literally counter to harmony. But at the same time, he's seeking wisdom, quite literally. He's going after, uh, he himself is going after Athena. So he feels like he's been greatly wronged by this uh, cheating. Yet he's does, he does the same thing. Uh, and he tries to go for Athena, but Athena is um, not interested in him at all. And she's capable, and she's, uh, she's the goddess of wisdom, but she's also the goddess of uh, strategy. So she's kind of, a war goddess as well, but in a very different way. And you can see why this would be something that uh, Hephaestus would seek out because uh, this is, um, you know, he's very instrumental, right? He, he has these objects that he uses um, and creates to, to make things happen in the world. Uh, but he's not like on the top list of the gods. He's, he's not somebody who's often um, worshipped. And he's kind of known for his temper because uh, there's the volcanism and, and that kind of stuff. So like he he recognizes anger, but not um, not in the same way Ares does. It's not an impassioned uh, sense of of justice exactly. Um, although Ares is kind of a darker god, not a lot of, not a lot of people worship him as well. But um, Athena, on the other hand, has this more measured out kind of battle strategy. This idea of like how how are we going to uh, fix things, right things, bring justice in the world. And um, uh, how, you know, like, how is that all intertwined with wisdom, with this, this understanding of um, the nuance of things and the balance of things? Uh, so I, I just think that that's a, an interesting sort of wrap-up take on all this that um, really ties in well with that whole iron sharpening iron thing. <laughs> Here's just another level of that, like, Hephaestus is the god of, of the blacksmith, and then you have this imagery of, of the iron man. Uh, being created for him. Uh, so I think that's just another level of, of ditching this whole idea of um, fighting and making the tools for the fight and instead going to, to, to taking a more step back, step back approach, a wisdom approach, a Promethean approach that says um, our insight and our intellect has a value, um, but but not in a rigid way in a way of being able to burn things away so that new things can come, being able to enter into cycles and balance.
being able to enter into motion and movement and change. So I think that that's probably, um, that, that's probably all I got for this so far. Uh, it was a little rough and dirty, but uh, I'm going to throw it up anyway. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening.